Hello, I'm Ryan Beasy, and this is the Westminster Standard Podcast. What is the Christian's duty to the civil magistrate? In recent years, we have been told that unless the magistrate commands the Christian to sin, then the Christian and the church must obey the magistrate. But is that the historic understanding of the church regarding the Scripture's teaching on our duty to the civil magistrate? Are there other limits on the authority delegated to the magistrate that Christians in a more nuanced age had articulated? Last October, there was a fascinating exchange at the Reformation and Worship Conference hosted by Midway Presbyterian Church that got me thinking about these topics. Is submitting to the governing authorities the same thing as obedience? Are Christians obligated to obey the civil magistrate even when he exceeds his lawful authority? Let's watch that exchange. Starting with uh, uh, <clears throat> Pastor Pruitt, to give a short answer, what, what have you learned about ecclesiastical reactions to COVID? Oh, come on. <laughs> what have I learned about ecclesiastical reactions to COVID? Um, I've, I've, I learned that we uh, uh, went along with what uh, Governor Northam at the time in Virginia um, required of everybody, and um, uh, that was for about three months. And uh, as soon as the executive order was lifted, after three months, we, um, we went right back to our normal schedule of gathering. But um, I, our, should, should there be another executive order like that, um, I suspect our church will be um, a little less submissive. I learned that Bible-believing Christians do not believe in First Peter. We don't believe slaves have to obey masters, we don't believe women have to obey their husbands, and we don't believe we have to obey the state. Uh, and Peter told us we have to do all three of those things, and we just really don't care what Peter thinks. <laughs> Two things, I think one, what struck me was how little real thought had gone into the question of where state power ends and where church power begins what is it the state has a right over uh, and, and the church has a right over. And the second thing was, uh, and this is not to say that it wasn't right, right at the beginning of the pandemic for churches to not to meet for a couple of Sundays, you know, when we, we, we didn't know what was going on. But what struck me was how easily Protestants found it to go online to worship, which told me how little they, they understood the importance of actually being physically together to worship which in some ways connects to the stuff I was talking about early on, about the, the significance of, of the body. Uh, it was interesting looking at responses in the Catholic Church where a lot of Catholics were going crazy because they couldn't get the Mass. The Mass should be taken physically, as far as they were concerned, whereas Protestants could sort of listen online or on podcasts. Uh, and so the body is just intuitively less important to us. And I think COVID exposed that in a rather dramatic way. And so on this week's episode, we'll consider the origin and purpose of the civil magistrate, as well as the God-ordained limits to the power of the state, and therefore the limits of the Christian's duty of obedience, even as God's people continue to submit to the government's lawful authority. Thanks for joining the program. Well, today I am joined by uh, Dr. T. David Gordon and Dr. Michael Lynch, and we are going to be uh, considering that question of where is the end of state power and what prerogatives are reserved for uh, the church, biblically uh, speaking. 
Uh, so, uh, Dr. Gordon, why don't you introduce yourself? I know you've been a, a professor at both the collegiate and seminary levels, as well as a pastor in various uh, congregations. Yeah, I'm a native of Richmond, Virginia, so not too far south of Delaware uh, in Mid-Atlantic State. Um, went to Roanoke College, then did a couple of master's degrees at Westminster in Philadelphia, and then did a Ph.D. at Union Seminary in Richmond under Paul Ochtemeyer on Paul's understanding of the law. And that's been sort of the area of most of my uh, professional expertise when I've had a chance to pursue that expertise. Um, and that's kind of what got me involved in this sort of a thing. So I started teaching at Gordon-Conwell in uh, the fall of 84. We moved here to Grove City in 99, I guess it was. Um, in the last nine years that we were in New Hampshire, I also pastored Christ Presbyterian Church up in Nashua, New Hampshire, and commuted down to Gordon-Conwell from there. And you've also served uh, the denomination and Presbyterian in various ways. You've been moderator of Ascension Presbyterian a number of times, I think, and uh, you served on the General Assembly's Committee on Constitutional Business. Is that correct? Yeah, I did constitutional business twice, I think. Uh, served on bills and overtures, the old bills and overtures, as it used to be called. Um, I was secretary twice and chairman of that once. Um, so I guess did those things. And I'm about to finish my uh, year of moderating here at Ascension Presbytery at the very next meeting at the end of January. I'll, I'll happily handle, hand the gavel over to someone else uh, at that point. Well, someone has to keep Jared Nelson in line. Yes, uh, someone uh, has to try. <laughs> the, the two happiest people on the planet uh, at that point will be a 10-year-old boy with a new bicycle and a presbytery moderator handing the gavel to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, Dr. Lynch, uh, tell us about yourself. Yeah, uh, I'm a native of Texas, uh, but I he live here in Delaware. Um, I teach at a classical school. Uh, teach humanities and ancient languages. I um, also teach for the Davina Institute, um, and that's about it. I'm an OP uh, I'm a member of the OPC. I've been a member since 2004. That's pretty much it. And you you earned your PhD from uh, was it Calvin College or Calvin University at that point? Uh, neither, actually, Calvin Seminary. Um, Calvin Seminary. Yeah, Calvin Seminary, and uh, I did uh, my work on. Uh, Bishop John Davenant and his hypothetical universalism, everyone's favorite topic. <laughs> well, you, you, you must know very few people if that's everyone's favorite topic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, uh, today, uh, both of you have uh, some experience uh, in considering uh, these things. Uh, can you uh, walk us through the biblical origin of the civil magistrate, as we just mentioned, it uh, is not a creation ordinance. Uh, but when, uh, where do we get the idea uh, that there is the need for a, a, someone uh, to keep the rules? Is it just some strong guy has a bigger stick than the next guy? And, and is that where do we get the idea of a civil magistrate? I don't know if Dr. Lynch wants to handle that first or if he wants me to. I think I'll let you handle that one. There, there may be some difference of opinion on whether or not um, I think that uh, government would have been uh, – pre-lapsarian or not. But anyways, uh, you can take the post-lapsarian position and I'll let you go. Yeah, I think the uh, the first uh, suspicion of the need for it is actually in chapter four of Genesis, where there's the fear that Lamech will just be absolutely unrestrained in his vengefulness. 
And so if uh, if uh, Cain is avenged a sevenfold, Lamech seventyfold. And so you, you have uh, uh, in chapter four, interestingly, in the early part, uh, you have fratricide. A brother kills his brother. Um, and then in response to that, uh, the fear that the mob uh, will just take over and, uh, and tear uh, Cain to pieces for murdering his brother. And then two or three generations later, the great grandson says that if Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech 77. So you already see the tendency of uh, human depravity to just multiply in an almost unrestrained manner at that point. So God actually intervenes originally to preserve uh, Cain and puts a mark on him of some sort uh, to provide divine protection from mob justice, we might say. So it's not terribly surprising then after the flood judgment that when they emerge, there's the repetition of the creation language uh, that you'll have dominion over the earth and so forth. So you have the repetition of it, but now adjusted to the realities of depravity because the flood judgment eradicated thousands, if not millions of humans, but it did not eradicate depravity. And so even as they emerge, there's the likelihood that a man will shed a man's blood the way Cain killed his brother. And so uh, it's not a new Eden with innocent people. It's a post Eden with depravity. And so now what we find is that uh, God appoints human agency. Uh, the emphasis there is not just that if a man sheds a man's blood, uh, his blood should be shed. But if a man sheds a man's blood by man, shall his blood be shed. And so now God, who once was the avenger, as it were, and protector uh, of uh, preventing mob violence and over vengefulness. Now he appoints someone, um, some human agent now to prohibit depravity from running wild. Um, so I take it that way. Now, you know, John Frame had argued years ago in the Westminster Journal that uh, government would naturally have resulted from a family um, and, and that uh, it, it's, uh, it would have been uh, uh, prelapsarian in that sense. Um, and I think John was wrong. There would be no, no need to threaten anyone with capital punishment until people were inclined to do so. Uh, you don't need the government to restrain sin until you have sin. Um, and so that's the original origin there is in Genesis 9. And by the way, we'll chat about it later, but most of us, many of us who wrestle with the New Testament, we believe that First Peter 2 and Romans 13 are little more than apostolic glosses on Genesis 9. They're simply saying, lest you think that that common grace ordinance is no longer needed now that Christ is our Lord and, and Caesar is not our ultimate Lord. He, they reassert, basically, mm. that as long as there's depravity, we still need the civil magistrate uh, to be a praise to those who do good and to be a terror to those who do evil. So I think that uh, Romans 13 and 1 Timothy 2 are, so, are very similar because they both go back to and comment on that uh, reality, that post-Diluvian uh, creational reality. And so whether the civil magistrate was instituted pre- or post-Lapsarian, either way, it's he is instituted of God. Uh, would, would you both agree at that point? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, he's referred to both in the Genesis narrative, obviously it's instituted there, but by the language of both both First Peter 2 um, and Romans 13 especially, he's called you know a minister of a God. A deacon. Yeah, a deacon, uh, and uh, and so he he is actually an agent. It's in the it's in the British sense of minister. Uh, in American English, minister sounds like a clergyman, 
But in British English, a minister is someone who represents others. So the prime minister is the prime representative of the parliament to the king. And so uh, you, uh, you, uh, the, the minister there is, can be secular or religious, and, and he is such a minister and is referred to as such. Indeed. Dr. Lynch, anything to add? or um... No, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Well, well let's mark this date. So um, there is uh, a divine warrant origin for the civil magistrate, but the Christian relates to the civil magistrate differently than he does to uh, the church. Should we, should we be seeking a Christian commonwealth, as is sometimes argued for uh, particularly rudely uh, lately? Yeah, I don't think so. I, I think there's no real need to do it. Uh, even the strongest arguments for it, historically considered, are probably in Bannerman's two-volume uh, Church of Christ, where he mentions something like seven foundations for having a friendly relation between church and state. <laughs> and he'll say a third foundation for having a cordial relation. And so he, he obviously avoids using the language of official or uh, 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 some kind of a uh, uh, treaty uh, of between them. And so even the strongest uh, uh, leaner of a church uh, supportive state, once he was aware of reformed ecclesiology, only talked about reasons for them having a cordial relation, that sort of a thing, or a friendly relation. But uh, no, I don't think there's any mandate that necessitates our, our uh, doing so it's dirty business it's, it's sort of like mm. taking garbage out uh, no one wants no one wants to be a garbage collector no one wants to serve in congress or even the state legislature uh newt gingrich was right it's like it's like herding cats it's a horrible despicable job but somebody has to do it um, and there's no real need uh, i think for us to christianize the state I, I, I agree. Um, Andrew Melville uh, is quoted, of course, in, in uh, T.E. Peck's wonderful little article in uh, volume two of his miscellanies. I don't know if they're still available uh, from Banner of Truth, but uh, uh, that exchange between uh, Melville and, uh, and King James. So there are two kings and two kingdoms in, in Scotland, and uh, the head of the Commonwealth is but a member of, uh, of the kingdom of Christ. Um, I think, uh, Dr. Gordon, it was, it was you who introduced me to, uh, to Thomas Ephraim Peck. Yeah, probably. Uh, yes, yeah, I, I, and almost certainly. Um, he, he says this, writing in 1863, uh, there's no magic in the name of Christ emblazoned on our Constitution and on our banners to transform us into a Christian people. Uh, we believe that a civil government was ordained for men and not uh, for the saints only, as there is a moral constitution of all men, which responds to the authority of God as moral governor, and they can recognize him as such without the saving power of the Holy Ghost and as God. Uh, the God of nature and providence has endowed men with the capacity for government who are not Christian. And of course, we could cite um, Nero uh, and, and Romans 13 as, as an example of, of such. Uh, Peck goes on to talk about how the relationship between the church and the state is unique in history. Uh, that pagan temples were, of course, arms of the state. Uh, that in a Mohammedan system, uh, the mosque and the state are intertwined. And even under the Hebrew Commonwealth, there was some uh, mingling of, of of the church, the synagogue, uh, the Hebrew church, uh, with the Hebrew state. They were they were coterminous, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, there's two ways of looking at that. Uh, 
that perhaps uh, Dr. Lynch will have another look at it but uh, than I have, but you could say that Israel was both a church and a state or that she was neither a church nor a state. And I normally take the negative position that the theocracy was in fact a peculiar institution and she was neither a state in the ordinary sense nor a church in the ordinary sense. And so uh, in her, it's true that insofar as either existed in the theocracy, they were the same institution or at least a very similar institution. Um, but on the other hand, some of the uh, free church people, even the free, the freer dimension of Presbyterianism have, have tried to argue that they were profoundly different uh, uh, institutions, even within the Israelite theocracy. Dr. Lynch, anything to, to add? No, I mean, I, I would just add um, that my leanings towards all these things have been largely driven by reading early modern folk writing on this, Gillespie, uh, Samuel Rutherford, uh, Richard Baxter, um, and then uh, a book that I'm reading right now is on, it's the Zurich Connection, something about the Zurich Connection in the Tudor uh, Church. It's about um, Vermigli and Bullinger's influence on political theology in the Tudor Church. Um, mm. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly uh, satisfied by their arguments of the role of the civil magistrate relative to both uh, um, the church and then just more generally with regard to true religion and what they ought to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much a fan of, the, you know, kind of the original Westminsterian language and these sorts of things. So, um, but, you know, I, I, I realize that um, the American Presbyterian church in particular uh, has um, pushed back on some of those sorts of issues in ways that Thomas Peck uh, uh, reflects the Southern church more generally, especially. So. Well, let's, yeah. let's oh, go ahead. And you may recall that uh, in uh, when Stuart Robinson uh, wrote uh, not only his church as an essential element of the gospel, but also his work um, uh, on a, a sort of a biblical theology that he has a, uh, a uh, I've got five or six appendices in the back. And uh, as he deal, touches on ecclesiology, he calls it the Scoto-American theory. Uh, so Dr. Lynch, you'd appreciate that because he thinks that Peck and, and uh, Robinson and, and those were influenced by Gillespie and Rutherford. Uh, and so, and, and by the second book of discipline. So I think that Peck saw himself and Thornwell, to a lesser degree, saw himself and Robinson as basically reviving the old Scottish doctrine. Because remember, the Scots didn't have to fight the church-state relationship as hotly as they did in England. So if you're in the British Isles, you know, in, in England, it was an enormous issue. Um, but the Scots had a, 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 a profound influence numerically on the, you know, for six of them, I think it was, very small numbers at the assembly. But here's an assembly called to defend and propagate the, the articles of the 39 articles, basically, the, the doctrines of the Church of England. And, and they are overtaken uh, by the brilliance of the Scots. And the Scots shaped it profoundly. And I think in a way that they preferred it was much less arresting yeah. under them yeah. than it would have been. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally agree that um, the Scots' political theology ought to be distinguished from, uh, at least in some ways, 
particularly in the very careful distinction between the roles of the civil magistrate, the role of the civil magistrate and the role of the church. And the Melville quote really does get at it, right? It was the Scot uh, Scottish uh, theologians in particular that always had a strong uh, anti the, the uh, calling the king head of the church and these sorts of things, which obviously uh, Henry VIII uh, very famously called him the supreme head of the English church and uh, himself the, the, the supreme head of the church. Um, what I would what I would say though is that if you read, say Gillespie's 111 propositions um, on church-state relations and the role of the magistrate, role of church, and these sorts of things, and then I, I, I've read uh, some of Peck, I've read all of um, uh, the book, the prior book that you mentioned by uh, Stuart Robinson. Uh, we we actually read it in seminary. Um, I I find a radically different approach, particularly with regard to the role that the civil magistrate has with respect to protecting true religion and for using the sword with respect to true religion than say you would ever find in any of these American theologians. And again, this is precisely why they take out the sorts of things that they do when they get to civil magistrate and then when they get to synods and councils and these sorts of things. Um, so, I mean, this is reflective in the very fact that they did not like what the Scott, it, and uh, I, I should note as well, the language on synods and councils, that paragraph that's taken out from the original one, uh, from the 1646 that's taken out in, in 1787, 1788, yep. um, that paragraph is almost word for word from one of Gillespie's propositions, right? Again, there's there's some... There are some significant kind of principial differences go uh, involved here. How they're reading the Old Testament, um, how, how, how they're reading all these sorts of things, and so. But again, I I, I am um, appreciative uh, of the uh, the fact that the American uh, Presbyterian Church has chose to uh, uh, read things differently. So I, I you know, that, that's just true. So, yeah. so do you take it that uh, uh, Robinson was a little bit optimistic uh, in suggesting the, the similarity between what he calls the scope to American theory and discourses of redemption? Yeah, I would have to, I'd have to go back and uh, 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 read it. Um, I'm skeptical that um, there aren't some really principial differences between late 16th and, er and, and then 17th century Scottish Presbyterian views on, the, on, on, on these questions, and then what I read in the Southern Presbyterians in particular. No, right? that's interesting. So anyways, but, 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 that, but that, <laughs> that doesn't mean that uh, to, to give kind of credence or to try to steel man what Robinson is wanting to say, that he thinks that they are just purifying, he probably thinks that they're purifying the kind of, uh, is it dross, is that the right English word, kind of the, the, the elements that were still kind of residue left over, and they're taking the true Scottish principles and 
you know, kind of uh, purifying them in a way that the Scotch, Scot, the Scots, uh, uh, the Scotch never really did. Perhaps that's what he's saying. And in that sense, you know, perhaps he's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that'd be my read also. I think that uh, if you think about it, uh, England is pretty much wedded to some official relation between church and state. Um, the Southern Presbyterians wanted to sever them all altogether. The Scots were sort of a via media, possibly, in between them, not able to go as far as the Americans did. And maybe what Robinson was saying is, as you say, that they were achieving, quote, the real, real Scottish desire in a way that the Scots couldn't, which is sort of begging the question, of course. <coughs> Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. but but you can see that, and then maybe Bannerman is a half step between the Scots and between Robinson, because when he has seven what he calls foundations for a friendly or cordial relation between state and church, um, he's obviously thought about the matter. But it's really funny that he has seven different things, and none of them say official relation or institutional relation. It's like friendly and cordial and uh, cooperative and this kind of a thing. So it seems like he's he's a baby step uh, between his native Scotland and where the Southern Presbyterians of that mm. moment were getting. Mm. Well, what about um, should the Bible uh, be the foundation of our laws? Um, obviously, you know, Peck has things to say about that. Um, how do we go about applying what we know to be the truth, what we know to be the highest good, uh, in our own in our own land? Well, you've got a spectrum on that one too, Ryan. You yes. know, you'd have uh, you'd have some people. I, I guess a hardcore theonomist would say that all of the Mosaic civil laws ought to become the laws of the United States. Um, and then you'd have people. I think some of the Reconstruction people who are less specific about it, but I think they would like to see the entirety of the biblical information about human nature and responsibility uh, in some sort of being reflected in our laws. Um, and then you would have some of us, such as myself, who would say, uh, oh, no, then you have another one after that. A third one would say uh, the uh, the first table can be omitted, the first table of the commands and the last ta second table uh, as they take it five or six, depending on how you enumerate them. But the, those could be enshrined in law. And then there are people like myself who say you don't need the Bible to be in any uh, in any form, in any role in the magistrate that uh, there are bases for having justice uh, that do not require any understanding or commitment to scripture. So for instance, if I, and I don't, I don't misinterpret Romans two fifteen. I hope, I don't think that the expression of law written on the hearts means intuitive knowledge of, of good <coughs> and evil. Um, but I do think the reasoning of Jesus frequently suggests when he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, will not the whole, the, the heavenly father know how to give the Holy Spirit to you. So he, he believes he can appeal to even his detractors. These were some of his enemies at the time, whom he calls evil, right? And, and yet they know how to care for their children. So he must be appealing to some basic thing that some call natural law that doesn't require special revelation uh, to indicate its truthfulness. And so it's the same way that if a, if, if a person sort of uh, argumentatively says to you that I'm a relativist and I don't believe that there's any true morality that's uh, universal to humans. I used to say you can refute them without a word just by slapping them in the face with an open hand. <laughs> and, and they will immediately act as though they've been wronged, right? And, and then they try to shuffle out and say, well, that's because it hurts. And they say, look, when I had 11 months of cancer treatment, that hurt too. And I never felt that my 
chemotherapist or my surgeon was doing me any wrong. Uh, so I, I think that there is something in human nature that uh, at least recognizes when wrong is done to them. And that's why you can have things, uh, uh, the rabbi saying negatively, what you would not have people do to you, don't do to them. And Jesus saying positively, uh, do to others as you'd have them do to you. Uh, I think there's a lot of reason to think that uh, people have some basic sense of justice that's built into them. And it's proven by when you mm -hmm. violate it in relation to them. Doesn't mean that the noetic effects of sin uh, don't exist. They do exist. Uh, but it just means that you could frame a government by appealing to what's basically just. Peck has an interesting perspective on this. I'm sure you're familiar with Whereas uh, He says, no, the, the, the Bible is not necessary, but he nuances it. And, and he, says, uh, he says this, that uh, the avocations necessary uh, to sustain the being or promote the well-being of society, agriculture, commerce, and so on and so forth, uh, if he be a civil magistrate or whatever, is to be governed by the negative authority of the Bible. So it's 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 almost as if uh, Peck says, well, you, the Bible is helpful, uh, but it is not necessary uh, to be uh, to have a civil magistrate to have a, a reasonably functioning state. It, it works better if you have it, but it's not necessary. Would would you think that is a, a fair summation? It's it's a fair summation of Peck. Um, and I just probably go even a little bit further, right, and say that um, it's not just that you have to have a distinguish between the positive and negative commands in the Bible. I don't think you have to consult the Bible at all. Hmm. Right? Natural law is sufficient. Yeah, uh, I think so. And natural law, as I say, disclosed by the rhetoric of Jesus, by how he argues. Hmm that he, 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 he argues as though uh, people know when they've been wronged, and that's why the yeah. rabbis said, what you would not have others do to you, do not do to them. The rabbis could have easily quoted Moses, uh, but they didn't, you see. Uh, they, they knew Moses as well as we do, better, <laughs> uh, and they knew all 613 commandments, but then they reasoned in, in what I'd call a natural theology manner. Mm. Well, so let's uh, let's look at some of the specific uh, New Testament texts to help us understand uh, the duty of the New Testament saint to the civil magistrate and 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 to civil uh, society. Is it okay if I if I uh, put the document you shared with me on the screen, Doctor Gordon? Yeah, you can pop it up there whenever you want, whenever uh, it's needed. Sure. Uh, whether I can or not will be a, another another question. This was. Uh, Anyway, we, uh, our production team here is is really uh, is really not quite top notch. Uh, so you compare these First uh, Peter two and Romans uh, thirteen. What would you say is the the general thrust of these passages? Uh, well, it, it's interesting. You see there that I uh, I color coded several of the terms you know in different categories. Uh, 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 green means go and red means stop, you see. <laughs> so the things that are prohibited, I, I put in red, and the things that uh, are, are positive uh, moral behaviors are in green. And then the purple I, I reserved, again, being very clever because purple is the royal color. Uh, all of the language that is frequently used for civil affairs in the Bible, um, I've purpled that out so that you can see that on the one hand, they use a lot of common words. Uh, with each other. Hupotasamai is the verb in each case. Uh, the magistrate is referred to as endicon, you know, uh, an avenger or something like that. Um, they talk about uh, hupereko, 
those who are superiors and so forth, diakonos, uh, doulos, these kinds of things. Timao often has, you know, an official uh, use for the honor and, and respect due for people who govern in various ways. But the other thing is um, they also have different words. The interesting thing is there are a lot of synonyms between the two of them as well. And I think that suggests that uh, there wasn't a common text per se that they were both referring to because each could also vary his language a little bit to say similar things. And I take it that what they're both informed by is Genesis 9. And so each of them is offering his uh, own gloss, as it were, on, on in Genesis 9, reiterating that God has authorized people to be a terror uh, to bad conduct and to be uh, a praise or an encouragement to good conduct. And so they use the language of doers of evil and doers of good and so forth. And the magistrate in both passages um, is a, a, a servant of God or a diakonos, minister of God, uh, to achieve this end. And that's why he is to be honored. Now, Paul, Paul's text is lengthier than Peter's text. That's why I always used it in my courses. Uh, it's the fuller one. And the other thing it does is Peter tells us the what, and many Christians want to know what to do, and, and I do too from time to time. <laughs> uh, but what Paul gave us was the why. So the imperative, let everyone be subject, in Romans 13, 1, is followed by a four and then by another four, right? So therefore, you see, so uh, uh, be subject to the authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. And then if we say, well, why would God do that, right? Because therefore those resist this, resist what God's appointed. See, that's not the first rationale and that's what's behind the, uh, the imperative. Be subject to the authorities because they've been instituted by God and therefore to resist them is to resist what God has done. And then verse three, if, if you say, no, why would God institute these authorities? And the answer is because they're a terror to evil conduct, but not a terror to good conduct. And so he's, he's referring to here to the divine institution, in my judgment, in Genesis 9. The magistrate is there to prevent the wicked from taking over human civilization. So he's authorized not only to discourage evil behavior, but to be a terror, a fearsome thing to it. And he even bears the sword, which is not used for uh, child punishment around the home in the ancient world. Uh, Malchus used a machiron, a sword, to knock the ear off of the, the servant. Uh, and so, uh, uh, in fact, Hebrews uses that word when it talks about the saints of the Old Testament who were persecuted, some of them uh, died by the sword and so forth. And so I think this is a, an almost overt reference to the capital punishment instituted in Genesis 9. And actually, Paul gives us more than uh, Peter does. Uh, Paul's is lengthier by, by drawing this out. Though Peter mentions it briefly that uh, uh, this is the will of God, you see, uh, and this, the servant of God to encourage good and discourage evil. I think Paul just goes farther in saying the submission is due to the divine ordinance and the divine ordinance is due to the necessity of the civil magistrate to restrain sin. Yeah, and to, to, to uh, T. David Gordon's point or Dr. Gordon's point, um, uh, in both passages, the assumption is that the emperor does not have the Bible, right? Correct. And yet he knows what is going to be good and what is going to be evil. And how is he going to know that? He's going to know it by natural law. 
right? And most, at least in the period, would have or not in well. I think Paul would have understood this, but uh, uh, at least in the early modern period, would have understood that the t Ten Commandments are just a summary of the moral law, anyhow, right? Which is which is which is natural, and so therefore, any any anyone can know this. I mean, Paul makes it makes this a deal. Uh, it seems to me in uh, Romans two, anyways. So, or Romans, uh, the latter part of Romans one. Sorry. So, anyways, so this is to to your point. I mean, Nero he thinks can already know without the Bible what is good and what is evil. And it is his duty as God's servant to execute uh, justice and bear the sword, right? So, yeah, I mean, yep. I, yeah, I So agree. the good that, and evil in view are public good and public evil. That's right. That, that, that's why when sure. Hodge comments on these matters, he says the, the magistrate uh, cares about their behaviors, especially their public behaviors, not their opinions, whether the opinions are about science or philosophy or whatever. That's not a public matter. It's a private mm. matter. But they care. And so if you think about it, when the when the early liberal republics were getting uh, started, so let's say the late 18th century into the early 19th century, the American Republic and the first French Republic and so forth, the political theorists of their time basically said uh, that, uh, uh, that the magistrate has to assure that we do not harm another's person or another's property. Now, later they add some smaller additions to that, such as harming their reputation and that kind of a thing. But, but mostly what you find reiterated everywhere is, is no harms against their person. You do not injure them and no harms against their property. You don't steal from them or burn their stuff down. You don't commit arson, these kinds of things. Neither and picks his pocket nor breaks his leg. Right. So, so, it, so if you think about it, most, most of the laws that come along later – are in many ways not necessary, other than that starting with Magna Carta and going beyond, we've we've been sort of a law dominant culture. But you know the, the hunter gathering cultures that are uh, related in a, in a less official way of dealing it, they have tribal elders, and if someone has a dispute, they each come and sit before the tribal elders and they hear them out and they decide the matter. How do they do it? They do it on the basis of what we'd call natural law that you can't harm someone, you can't harm his property. And so they don't even have a they don't have a legislative body. Um, they just they just uh, have wise people who adjudicate disputes uh, and, and they have access to the same realities, basically, uh, to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. But unless uh, Dr. Lynch has seen something that I haven't seen, I think most of the actual laws in the early republics are protections of person and property. You can't harm another person's person and you can't harm another person's property. Yeah, I mean, generally, although th there are, uh, as far as I know, I believe the last blasphemy case, I don't know if it made it to the Supreme Court or not, uh, I believe happens in the early 20th century in America. Uh, there were sort of blasphemy laws on uh, on um, the books. Um, but generally wow. speaking, yes, um, mm -hmm. right? Uh, usually um, things that aren't seen, and this... This to me goes back, it seems to me, uh, to at least John Stuart Mill's uh, uh, views on liberty, um, where, where basically he argues that people's opinions or thoughts uh, don't actually harm people's persons or property, right? And so um, most, of, um, uh, uh, most of America and most of the Western world now, generally speaking, 
has kind of bought into this principle, although obviously some some European countries actually have really strong uh, laws against uh, saying certain things. Right. I mean, in uh, in in Germany, you can't you can't like promote Nazism, you know, and these sorts of things um, uh, very, very uh, kind of notoriously. So anyways, but uh, yeah, yeah, I agree in um, in America, there has been a strong push for freedom of all sorts of speech. And that's why blasphemy laws have kind of run their course in America. Makes sense. And I think I think John Locke's treatises would be similar to John Stuart Mill's, wouldn't you, on the same sort of points? Uh, yeah, yeah. Even 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 with Locke, what you have is a certain um, push towards toleration mm -hmm. of aberrant or of perceived aberrant views. Now, I mean, if you read his if you read his treatise on toleration, um, he actually doesn't call he calls for. Well, first off, there's the distinction between toleration and support. Right. So um, he's calling for toleration of certain views and he wants tolerated basically any trinitarian views he still doesn't call for the toleration of roman catholicism he doesn't call for the toleration of uh, uh of islam or anything else like like it's it's simply a toler he wants a toleration of basically all the protestant um um uh kind of positions on various things basically if you're and this this is if you go read the document the uh the 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 act of toleration of 1688 it's very clear uh you you have to be a trinitarian you have to sign 31 mm -hmm. and a half or 35 and a half of the 39 articles and as long as you sign off on those you're you're good you can be you can get a license to preach and these sorts mm -hmm. of things but you're a tolerated church and what that means is that you're not getting you don't get you're not getting the full rights of being part of the English church or of the English Commonwealth. You're basically being you're basically being said, we're not going to prosecute you. Right. And we will allow for you. We will permit you. And so there's this gradual move of more and more toleration. And that toleration ends up being um, eventually in someone like Mill. I think actually um, the government shouldn't even distinguish between that which is tolerated and that which is good, but calling basically not calling anything as it were bad or good when it comes to the area of thought, right? Or religion, mm -hmm. uh, right? So you just you just don't, right? So, you know, uh, the, 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 the government is not in the business of... Um, of of saying whether or not one religious opinion or another is good or bad right and so eventually it just gets all kind of religious liberty rather than religious toleration right uh, they, they didn't have full freedom right uh, the tolerated churches didn't have full freedom um but now it's completely independent of any sort of uh, magisterial jurisdiction whatsoever yep. in america so there's been a gradual i think move over time as 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 I think you've been saying, so yeah. And as uh, as you point out uh, in uh, one of your uh, articles, uh, Dr. Gordon, the magistrate fulfills his purpose, whether or not he endorses Christianity or the Ten Commandments or anything else distinctive to our religion. The magistrate is analogous to the waste disposal person; he performs a duty that is vital to the <laughs> public well-being, but also odious. <laughs> and. 
that represents a, a different view than we often associate with the civil magistrate, but I think a, a valid and vital perspective for as our consideration of our role. Um, a lot of as Christians, our role as Christians, and our duty. Yeah, and to of course, him. our post-millennial friends regard me as odious, of course, for for saying something <laughs> like that. Uh, but uh, but uh, yeah, the beauty's in the eye of the beholder, I suppose, in a case like that. But, but yeah, my, my view is that uh, natural revelation has informed many perfectly fine cultures and it has informed the way they do law. Uh, Hammurabi's code is a pretty good code. Uh, the stuff you find in Confucius on filial piety is very wise stuff. It's almost like an entire collection that reflects the wisdom of our Proverbs and the, and the Holy Scriptures. So there, there's a great deal of, of material in the natural order and in human relations to inform uh, states adequately enough that they don't need any theologians to advise them. Yeah, ad adequately, but it doesn't hurt. Um, right, doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt. And you know, Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones uh, said uh, this uh, in his sermon on Romans 13, which kind of surprised me. He said, the business of the state is mainly negative. Mm -hmm. Its main function is to limit evil. That is its maddenate. That state can do very little positive good. Mm -hmm. I said in the 1960s, as you know, the welfare state was going full steam uh, in, in the United Kingdom, uh, acknowledging that there's very little positive good a state uh, can do. So uh, that kind of gets into um, our consideration of the limitations on state power, um, which is still uh, resonating in, uh, in, in conversations uh, today. What has been uh, the teaching of the Reformed Confessions uh, classically on this point, Dr. Gordon? Uh I, I don't think that they explicitly say as much as I might wish they said. That is to say, I don't think they say the kind of thing that Martin Lloyd-Jones said. I think the reason is uh, he, he, the, uh, the Industrial Revolution, the development of the steam engine, the steam turbine uh, the, uh, in the 19th century, I think that those things and, of course, the first uh, electronic things, uh, the uh, you replace the Pony Express with... Uh, telegraph. I think it's the, the development of those things which bring people to the cities, which make move move the demography from the countryside to urbans. I think that's the kind of thing that informed Abraham Kuyper, because he's at, li living at the end of the 19th century, and he's viewing what had happened in the previous 40 or 50 years. And it was really a time of probably extraordinary change. There may not have ever been a time where there was that much change in such a short amount of time. Um, and that's what caused him to say the 20th century will be the age of totalitarianism because we didn't have the means to be totalitarian before. The state could not be a Budinsky before you had a state highway system and before you had uh, central heating. I mean, they could turn off your electricity and your power. They do that now, right? If they suspect you doing something illegal in your home, they can, you know, they can turn all your power off and surround your house and so forth. You know, you could even imagine doing something like that in the mid-19th century. But by the end of the 19th century, uh, Kuiper recognized that governments now are going to tend towards totalitarianism, towards absolutism, mm. so that you won't have what he uh, wished, family, church, and state as uh, respective spheres of sovereignty respecting each other, but the state would become, as Dabney called it, topon, the everything. Mm. Um, so if you look at Dabney and uh, Kuiper, you know, not that far apart from each other, um, they're seeing the transition to totalitarianism. 
as, as the inevitable result of industrialization. And so uh, I think that they were prophetic in what they saw. And I don't think people living 200 years before at the time of the magisterial reformers and their creeds, I don't think they can anticipate the need to restrain government as much as Dabney and Kuyper and people in their generation saw. By the end of the 19th century, there was a real fear among Orthodox people of totalitarianism and justified fear. That's all we see now. We see yeah, it everywhere. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they can. If, if, if you park your truck on the road for too long, they can go and seize, at least in Canada, they can go and seize all the money in your bank account if they want to. Yeah. Uh, let me uh, put up a, a statement from uh, the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, Ursinus, um, especially the end of, of his statement here. And uh, speaking of the civil magistrates commenting on the Fifth Commandment, they are to be honored on account of their office, uh, which is to rule their subjects according to the will of God, whose ministers, servants, deacons they are. It is manifest that we must obey them only insofar as they do not go beyond the proper limits of their office. And so that kind of uh, touches on you know, the, the disagreement regarding Romans 13, which became especially heated uh, three years ago. Uh, what, is, what is the limit of their proper office. Uh, likewise, uh, you note in one of your articles, uh, our Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, it is the duty of all people to pray for magistrates, to honor their persons, to pay them tribute or other dues, to obey their lawful commands, and to be subject to their authority for conscience sake. And so you're, you're absolutely right. There was no way they could have foreseen uh, the power and, and uh, <laughs> Budinskyism of the uh, magistrates in the 20th and now the 21st century. But they did, even you know, 500 years ago, understand that there was a principle that the magistrate is to obey insofar as his commands are lawful. Correct. And Dr. Lynch, what, is, what, is, what do they mean by lawful commands or the proper limits of their office? What was in view yeah. there? Yeah. So, well, first they're limited by God. So they're the, uh, any commandment that would cause people to do something that was uh, unlawful um, uh, is ipso facto unlawful, right? So if, you know, he commands me to do something sinful, that's uh, on, on its own account uh, unlawful. But they also recognize that uh, nations have constitutions um, or uh, these the states have constitutions whether they're written or unwritten, right? And so therefore, say in England, uh, the, the, the magisterial power is uh, divested not just in the king, but also in parliament, right? And then, and then in their constitution as well, there are certain rights that are known to be uh, foundational to the subjects themselves, such that if the if the if either parliament or the king were to ever usurp those or to undermine them they'd be breaking as it were uh their constitution as a government in such they would be unlawful now they're unlawful not because they're seen to be against god's divine law at that point they're seen to be unlawful because they're breaking the constitution of that society. Yep. When the when when the when the when the subjects consent to a magistrate, uh, and the magistrate takes upon the rule of those subjects, he has to he is consenting, as it were, to whatever constitution is already there, mm -hmm. and so therefore he does not have the right 
to um, uh, to make a command or to 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 make a law that undermines that those constitutional rights. And this is why. Right. So we would we would say that the president, even now, it would be unlawful for him to just make an executive order that we don't have the right to bear arms. Why? Because we have a constitution that says that we do. He has no right to do that. Now, there, there is a process of changing these sorts of things, making amendments to our constitution and these sorts of things. But that would be the legal route. But that would be illegal. And so therefore, that's unlawful. And therefore, uh, the, 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 the reformed are unanimous. It's not just the reformed. It's almost all political theorists at the time, right? They're, they're, they're unanimous that, that you have the right to not follow those sorts of unlawful commands because uh, a, a, the subjects don't just have duties to the, the, the magistrate, but the magistrate via constitutions also has duties to the people and one of his duties is to follow the constitution it's like a contract he's basically yeah. breaking a contract at that point and so right so there are all sorts of lawfulnesses that don't rise to the level of breaking god's law but would still be uh areas in which a christian could or just a subject could lawfully uh as it were lawfully um, uh, reject uh, and uh, not submit to, resist. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. For example, if the king wants to tax inland cities with the ship tax instead of just the coastal cities, which was certainly in the minds mm -hmm. of the Westminster divines as they wrote um, as they wrote this chapter here. Right, right, right. So what you see is you, you see a little historical trajectory. Um, brought by the late 18th century, especially among the French, you have a pure social contract theory, right? But before that, you have the English jurists that Dr. Lynch is talking about, right? Talking about the Constitution as having the effect of what was later called social contract. And you go back even further historically and you have Magna Carta, where for the first time, there are the, the lords and the landowners actually restrain the king in some ways. Yeah. For instance, in saying you can't allow people to fish, but X amount of fish at this part of the Thames because then when the water goes down to other cities, they won't be able to get fish out of it. It's, it's fascinating that the 47 things or something in Magna Carta are all nitpicky things like that. They're really fine things, you see, suggesting even there that there is an unspoken contract between subject and monarch. And then they, they articulate that in Magna Carta later with the, the jurists that, that you were speaking of that uh, it would say it's also unlawful to violate this contract that, con that constitutes us. Um, and then, of course, yeah, in some ways, in a more secular vein, it becomes full full on social contract theory. But you see it developing over a long period of time. And, and Charles Hodge several times uh, in volume three, it's about page three, I think it's I think it's 360 to 68 or somewhere in there. But two or three times he uses the term nullity to refer to what Dr. Lynch was talking about. If you do something that's unconstitutional, there it is, see, it is a nullity uh, and no man sins in disregarding it. Um, so he's, he uses that term two or three times in a four or five page pace, a page space where he says, yeah, in addition to what's contrary to what we might call natural law, uh, he can't violate the constitution. Uh, a, a president today by executive order couldn't just decide 
that uh, the Senate is to be peopled by the same principles as the House of Representatives on the basis of the state population. There's still going to be Wyoming and states like that that actually have more representation in the Senate than they do in the House because they only have one in the House because they're so small population-wise that every state gets two senators. So I think Hodge and others would say, if you if you were by executive order to violate that, you had violated the Constitution. Or, or if uh, you know the government were to do any number of, of things not reserved for it in uh, the in the Constitution of the state or the, the county charter or whatever that might be, you know we can uh, we can cite broad or absurd examples, of course. Uh, but but these principles are vital for us to understand. Yeah, and the posse comitatus in the mid 20th century, early to mid 20th century, I suppose, they they moved to Idaho because of the uh, income tax. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the federal government can tax anybody. It can tax commerce, but it can't ta tax your income. And so, uh, you know, I'm not sure there's been a good court case since then uh, where where, where the, it's been finally adjudicated. And if so, I'm sure it would have been um, a liberal court that permitted it. But the Constitution does not authorize Congress. This was the problem Washington had during uh, the war. He he couldn't conscript people and he couldn't ask, he could ask state for money and he can ask state for troops, but he, he had no authority to simply say they've got to send it. Hmm. And so you had citizen soldiers and that meant, you know, when, when it wasn't harvest time, they'd be happy to serve. But as soon as it was harvest time, they're going back home and work in the fields. So, uh, yeah, one could make a strong argument that uh, that required uh, not merely uh, Mr. Roosevelt's decision or others, uh, it probably properly required a constitutional amendment. Mm, yes. Yes. So uh, there is grounds for civil disobedience in you know, the principles of the scripture. Um, and another principle being, um, uh, let's see here, no, that's here, Charles Hodge. Um, from his commentary on Romans, the obedience the scriptures command is to render uh, our rulers is not unlimited, but only in the exercise of their rightful authority. And so uh, on this ground, he, he concludes, our obligation to obedience rests and the obligation ceases when it's designed is systematically, constantly, and notoriously uh, disregarded. So it seems as though the civil constitution can limit uh, the... Uh, the obedience that we owe our duty uh, to the civil magistrate. Uh, but what, what other areas uh, might we uh, consider to be uh, Christian uh, civil disobedience? I want to play a little clip here from um, everyone's favorite news channel. Um, Thank goodness. Also in Iowa, the state capitol allowing a satanic temple display, essentially recognizing Satanism as a religion. A Christian veteran was so upset by it that he tore it down. I was surprised that it that the legislature allowed it up and that they didn't do anything to take it down just to to take it down. It offended me. It touched a nerve. It was uh, you know righteous indignation. I call it you know Christian uh, civil disobedience. Disobedience. Um, and yes, yeah, so I, I took the the statue that was there and it or the the idol, whatever you want to call it, uh, and then it's no longer there. Ah, Christian civil disobedience. Interesting language, uh, 
it, it sounds like he may be under charges because he started to say one thing and then uh, changed course that, oh, well, it's no longer there. He didn't acknowledge that he did anything. Uh, interesting uh, language there. But uh, Christian civil disobedience, is that what Paul did in Acts uh, 15? He's wandering through uh, Athens and he sees a bunch of idols and he uh, is angry about it. He's offended and uh, he uh, they're no longer there. Is that is that our Christian duty? Does being a Christian give us the right to do uh, such things? Yeah, I would say if, if you go back to the two fundamental principles of no crimes against property and no pr- crimes against persons, then, uh, you know, if people want to have an idol in their front yard, they can. You know, as Presbyterian Christians, we think all of these uh, manger scenes are idolatrous <laughs> and they're all over the place right <laughs> yes uh, so we think they violate the second commandment um but i don't go and tear it out of my neighbor's yard because it's his yard now what they do in public property i think the public has a right uh to I- invade on those kinds of things and to appeal to their city town fathers and so forth and maybe the town fathers just want no celebration of any religious holiday whether satanic or christian or islamic or jewish whatever or the town fathers might decide to tolerate it. If they choose to tolerate it in a public place, then I think you just got to go somewhere else to do your business. Hmm. Yes, interestingly, we have on uh, Christmas Day we debuted an episode on the Second Commandment and looking at the common differences that are in the PCA with uh, the Second Commandment and expressing alarm uh, that we seem to have this double standard that we're outraged by an idol in a state house but not uh, a violation of the second commandment in our uh, in our in our own yard perhaps or in our our own church buildings i wouldn't be surprised if some napar churches had nativity scenes right in the churches right wouldn't surprise me at all some somebody was chatting with me a couple of weeks ago about uh, the true meaning of christmas and i said there is no true meaning of christmas it's it's not apostolic. It was third or fourth century before the church ever did this. There is no true meaning of Christmas. There's true meaning to the incarnation and to the two natures of Christ, to the hypostatic union, all sorts of things. But there's no, no true, uh, there's no true way to observe a rite that the apostles didn't observe. And so you can do whatever you want. We just happen to enjoy our family and eat a lot. And if you're Robert Louis Dabney, you go rabbit hunting. Yep. Yep. And uh, if if I went out the day before, I'd rabbit hunt first, and then we would eat the rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be a better way to do it. Uh, yeah, so it, it's really funny if you read our standards on this, right? You know, you know, any image of anything in heaven above, earth beneath, or waters beneath the earth—that's pretty comprehensive. And expressly says, or any of the three persons of the deity. And so, if you think the God Man at his birth was a part of the Godhead, then you can't have an image of it. Not in front of your house, not in front of your school, not in front of your town hall, not not anywhere. Amen. Uh, so we, we disobey, obviously, when we are commanded to sin. Uh, in, uh, in the scripture, we see numerous examples of that, especially the book of Acts. Uh, we see in Acts 16, though, uh, the apostles are commanded to leave town, and they say, no, we're not going to do that. And uh, as I take it, you would argue that they were right in refusing to leave town, uh, to leave Philippi, uh, because the magistrates had exceeded their lawful authority. Uh, but um, Dr. Gordon, you argue that their uh, 
that there's further nuance uh, that needs to be uh, made uh, to our uh, obligation, especially when we are privately disobeying uh, the civil magistrate. Let me uh, put up this this quote from you here, which I think is uh, elucidates this very well. Uh, you say, if in my judgment it is that the magistrate's role is limited, uh, gotta get that thing off there. Uh, limited to punishing wickedness, and if it is my judgment that the magistrate now threatens to punish behavior that is not wicked, why am I obliged to concur with the magistrate's judgment? If the right of private judgment is inherent in the Protestant view of liberty of conscience, and if, for this reason, I am even free to understand Scripture in a sense other than the sense taught by uh, the Church, how is it that I do not enjoy the same liberty of conscience uh, with regard to the dictates of the magistrate? It is, is it possible that I owe more allegiance to the civil magistrate than to the ecclesiastical authority? I think that's a, a point that's often overlooked. Uh, would you flesh that out there? You know, first, the, uh, there are two opinions at the assembly, and the reason they said obedience to his lawful commands is they didn't enjoy unanimous consensus on what constituted a lawful command. And so that's where Hodge and Dabney disagreed. Uh, some, somewhat profoundly. Uh, and it's one of the few places where I find myself in disagreement with Dabney on that point. Because if, the, if, if Luther can be uh, lionized for saying, unless I'm convinced by scripture or evident reason, it, it, it's not safe, I can't do otherwise, here I stand. Uh, if he can interpret the scriptures differently than the Pope does, then I can interpret the scriptures or uh, common law differently than the magistrate does. How can it be that the magistrate has higher authority than even the heads of the church? And so I would think uh, that Hodge is right, that if Gordon's judgment is that the magistrate has exceeded the bounds given him by God, let's say that when they required us to fill out paperwork when we homeschooled our daughters for a handful of years, required us to fill out paperwork to satisfy them that we knew our daughters. And I'm thinking, you know, in Harrisburg, they don't have three people with as many degrees as I have. They may not have anyone there, and, and they may not have anyone with 30 years of, 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 of teaching professionally as an educator, and they certainly don't know my daughters as well as I do. So who are they to tell me that I have to satisfy them when we educate our children? It's just preposterous to think that I should have to pass the muster of people who don't know what they're talking about. They don't know my daughters, and they don't know as much about educational theory as I do or it's practice for, for crying out loud. So Dabney thinks that, that we can only disagree with the magistrate when he tells us to do that which is wicked, but we cannot disagree with his judgment. And I'm saying, well, everything that he tells us to do or not do is a matter of his judgment versus ours. So Hodge's approach is my approach that, yes, if you, if you differ in your judgment, if you think he's overstepped the bounds given him by God, then your conscience does not require you to obey him at all. But, Hodge says, you do so, you disobey at your peril. And that's why Paul mentions the sword, that the magistrate does not bear the sword in vain because he can still find me or put me in the slammer for three weeks or something like that. And so if I disobey, my conscience is clear, but I may spend time in prison. And so the uh, this is why Thomas Manton said there's there's two motivations in Romans 13 for obedience. One is the conscientious motivation that insofar as the magistrate tells us to do what is good, conscience tells us we should do good. 
And insofar as he tells us not to do evil, conscience tells us to do not to do evil. But if he oversteps his bounds and commands what is not uh, uh, a natural law reality, then it's our decision whether to risk his wrath by uh, uh, disobeying him if we judge he's overstepped his bounds. So in our case, for instance, I did fill out the paperwork. And the reason was not that I felt conscientiously I had to, but because I would rather spend two nights doing paperwork than two nights in the slammer. I mean, it was a no-brainer at that point, right? I would rather satisfy the knucklehead and give him what he needs to get him off my back than I would spend a couple of weeks in jail, you know, because I hadn't satisfied him. And so Romans 13 then gives us both motivations, conscience and the power of the state to, to, uh, to sanction us. So um, if, if, we, if we were in a circumstance where the state could have no knowledge of what we were doing, for instance, when I was, you know, snowshoeing in Vermont 20 years ago and, and, we, and we had some Cuban cigars. Well, you know, we were only 20 miles as the crow flies from Canada. So by the time the police started snowshoeing up the mountain afterwards, we could go down the north side and head to Canada. Um, but in other words, they weren't going to catch us up there. And so in a case like that, uh, I think it was just as lawful to smoke a, a, an, uh, uh, an unlawful Cuban cigar as for my friend Kyle to smoke an un an unlawful joint, and he did. And so I smoked an unlawful Cuban cigar. He smoked an unlawful joint. And I don't think the magistrate had any good authority to tell either one of us what we could or could not smoke at the summit of a mountain that we snowshoed to in Vermont. Just wasn't any of their business. You, you quote Thomas Manton, one of the uh, Westminster divines. Submission to man may be performed by suffering the penalty, mm-hmm. though the obedience required be forborn. And in some cases, a man may do contrary in private, where the thing is indifferent, and there is no danger of scandal and contempt of authority. And I think that's an important qualifier, which mm-hmm. your, your story does fulfill. You're 20 miles from the nearest human, or you two, you two were. Um, there's no scandal of, of, of throwing off uh, lawful authority, and there's some question of whether it's even a lawful command. Right. Right. So, for instance, we all know that uh, when President Kennedy embargoed Cuba— Uh, He did so at a time when there were Soviet missiles there. And you guys are younger than I, but when I grew up, we had missile drills at school in third and fourth and fifth grade where we would they would play a siren and we'd get under our desks and stuff because we never. And that geography book would give you a lot of cover, right? Yeah, that's right. But we've got we're trained to get under our desks because missiles might fly from Cuba. And so um, so with all the mess that went on there, eventually he stood uh, Khrushchev down and the missiles were gone. But then there were all sorts of Cuban expats living in Florida, and Florida is a swing state. It, it, it decides most elections in the United States. And so no one has wanted to pick that hot potato up since then and say, well, now that the missiles are not there, let's stop embargoing Cuba. And so it's OK for, for people to take Cuban seed to the Dominican Republic or to Nicaragua and grow cigars that I can legally smoke and that they are chemically the same. Um, but if they plant them in Cuban soil, you can't buy them, right? And that's so crazily arbitrary, and it's due for the mere political reason. In fact, had W been reelected, had he been elected for a second term, he'd already made it clear that he would have uh, opened up trade with Cuba in his second term. But he couldn't say that before, before the election because he wouldn't have been reelected, and he knew he wouldn't have been. 
But had he been reelected, uh, he was he was going to open relations. And still, here we are three or four presidents later. We still haven't opened full trade with Cuba. And so it's just a silly law. Uh, Cuba is no longer a threat to us. The Soviet Union doesn't exist. There are no nuclear missiles in Cuba. And yet a law which might have had some real justification um, in 1962 has no justification today. And it's still on the books. So I think I ought to just sit in my front yard sometime and smoke a Cuban cigar and have a sign beside me that says I'm smoking a Cuban cigar and show a little contempt for the law, because in this case, the law is contemptible, right? It's just so contemptible. We ought to show contempt for it. I think they did loosen that, that you can't buy them, but you can possess them. So I guess yeah, when, if you if you steal we them, like, it's okay. No, if you uh, when we were in uh, Paris and London uh, a couple of years ago, just before COVID, um, I bought uh, uh, some Cuban cigars at Heathrow and brought them home. So you you cannot have them shipped to you by a retailer in the United States. But if you're traveling in a country that trades with Cuba, you can bring X amount back with you. So the, essentially the United States government simply can't tax them, which seems, again, counterintuitive. Yeah, I mean, if the government wanted to tax them, they could make some real money. Mm. Well, you bring up uh, you bring up COVID. You know, during COVID, we were told we were sinning if we refused to shut down houses of worship or if we refused to wear a mask. Uh, following your logic, is it wicked to refuse to wear a mask or is it wicked to cease worshiping on the Lord's Day uh, at the magistrate's edict? I think there could be times when uh, the mask might be useful. I think the law of charity would be uh, yeah. if, you're, if you're visiting someone in the hospital and the person has, you know, if the person's 80 years old and she's, she has a, a problem with her breathing and maybe even have a mild case of pneumonia and so forth. And, and it's during COVID. I think if you're paying a pastoral visit, you wear a mask, for goodness sake. Sh- in this sense, you say, if nothing else, she'll, she'll feel safer. She may not be safer. She may be safer, but she'll feel safer. So as, a, as the law of charity, I think you, you would behave around others in a manner that makes them know that you care about their well-being and welfare. But uh, no, I would have done what uh, Dr. MacArthur done had I still been in the pulpit in those days. I would have said what he graciously said, which is that uh, we're not going to discipline anyone during this COVID epidemic if they stop coming to church. Um, We aren't epidemiologists. I'm not. My deacons aren't. My elders aren't. um, uh, My people aren't. And so people have to make their own decision about what they'll do. He said, however, I am a minister of the Church of Jesus Christ, and one of the things we do is we meet on the day of the resurrection, on the first day of the week, and we conduct public worship. And it may be myself and ten deacons and no one else, but that's what we do. And and it's our duty as heads of the church to do that. And if others want to join us or none want to join us, that's fine. Uh, and I thought his his response was perfectly fine. Uh, Dr. Lynch, your church had a had a, had a very significant uh, issue and run-in where you took the governor to court over his his edict forbidding God's people to gather on the first day of the week. Yeah, it, it wasn't um, that he was forbidding us. It was that early on for the first couple weeks, he made a – what he did was he gathered together a whole bunch of – liberal ministers to advise him on what he should do relative to uh, uh, public worship and how that should be affected by COVID. This is very early on, right? So this is like the first couple of weeks. 
And they came out with a ruling that basically said um, you could still circumcise your children, but you couldn't baptize anyone, right? You Yeah, so like there was all sorts of weird rules that were unequally fitting to various uh, kind of religious worship. They weren't neutral in terms of content. Yes, right. Um, so, for example, you could only have 10 people uh, in a worship service, but there were no limits on how many people were at gambling facilities. There were no limits on how many people could be in liquor stores at any given time. These sorts of things. And our Constitution has one of the strongest, or still, our current Delaware Constitution, if you go to the very first article, has one of the strongest emphases on the on the necessity for the common good of public worship, um, actually. So it says that while the government can't force anyone to go to worship, it can't force taxes anywhere, it basically says it's really good for people to meet corporate uh, in corporate worship is basically what it says. Like, it's good for people to go to church. Um, uh, yeah, so if you if you read it, it's, it's, it's still there. It's, that's the wording, 1895. Is, is the current uh, thing. Yeah. In, anyways, so um, they, the, the, the lawsuit that my church, along with one other church, um, and it was particularly our minister and this other minister who was um, uh, some kind of Pentecostal African-American minister who was also upset about for the same sorts of issues, brought a lawsuit against the governor for it being bo- uh, both unconstitutional um, as well as um, uh, kind of uh, unnecessary. Uh, but the unconstitutional business was the lawfulness uh, side of things. And uh, uh, it was re- eventually judged. It went to the uh, Chancery Court. Chancery Court says this isn't really a Chancery Court issue. Then it went to the other uh, uh, kind of state court. And they decided that the governor was immune from any lawsuits relative to his executive decrees. And the reason for that is, is that our Congress, our Senate and House of Representatives basically gave the executive power in Delaware basically gives our governor supreme right to do basically whatever he wants, uh, including unconstitutional, like things that are contra the constitution, right? Because it's believed to be like, this is a, this is such a serious situation in which normal constitutional rights can be abrogated for the sake of a higher, you know, goal, right? In mind, right? Um, and so, you know, you might say, you know, quartering soldiers is a constitutional right, but you know, the, the federal government might see a situation in which we just have to allow, uh, uh, demand that people, you know, quarter soldiers or something. Anyways, all that to say is, is that uh, it was thrown out as being mm. uh, there's no way that you could uh, uh, prosecute this. So they they threw it out. Anyways, it seems yeah. like that would be at a precise situation where Hodges counsel would be vital uh, that he has violated the clear language of. Of, of, of the highest law of the state in the Constitution, and of course, the federal Constitution as well. But if this was only for a few weeks uh, in March, that's, uh, that's one thing. And even as, uh, as Todd Pruitt referred in, in the video we showed at the beginning, um, 
there's there's one way you approach it when, when everything's new and you don't want, know what's going on. And there's something different when this is clearly more than uh, public health interest. We, we've, we've had these issues uh, very famously during the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus for a whole, a whole slew of people. Um, um, and, and so we've, we've had these issues in the past. And again, he, would have, he was arguing very clearly that um, this is kind of like this unusual situation in which uh, these constitutional rights can be suspended. And so the lawfulness of those sorts of things is a very tricky situation. I, yeah. I think ultimately, I think the state probably was right in saying that there was no way of prosecuting him constitutionally, uh, given the fact that this executive order was given by our legislative body and these sorts of things. Um, I, I just don't think that uh, our legislative bodies should necessarily have the right to be able to do that to begin with. But that is how our constitution is uh, currently uh, set up. And so if we wanted to avoid that situation again, we would need to um, go back and uh, change our constitution and mend, mend the state whatever. Of the constitution. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Now you still had, it seems to me you still had this sort of uh, the fundamental justice issue of uh, why does the, uh, why is it, Health-wise, safe for the casinos to be open, right? And not right. For the churches to be open. Had yeah, it closed which, which, everything which, down. You could I, at least have it was equitable, right? Yes, um, it was completely unequitable, and that 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 is that is the, 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 the that seemed to be one of the things that they were just kind of over, not wanting to deal with. Um, and they would point out to the that they were also pointing out the fact that one. The controversy's over. Two, uh, this is something else the state was saying, or, or the uh, defense, um, the state defense was saying. They were also saying things like he, 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 after about three weeks, when he got pushed back over some of this stuff, he relented. But our minister's arguments were, we want to forestall that happening again. And so that's why we wanted something, we wanted a lawsuit such that would, make a judgment of whether or not the establish way a precedent was, yes and and they they just weren't they they just didn't allow it so. well sometimes courts have to do that even ecclesiastical courts sometimes mm -hmm. do that so uh, as we kind of bring things in for a close in some uh the scripture places limits on uh the authority of the civil magistrate as well as protections for the prerogative of the church uh the those limits on his power, the civil magistrate's power, flow from the purpose uh, of the civil magistrate to reward the, those who uh, promote the public good and to punish those who uh, do uh, what is wicked. Uh, and so whether there's a duty to obey the civil magistrate beyond that is a, is a right of private judgment, would you say, Dr. Gordon? Yeah, I think so. As, as long as part of your private judgment is that uh that you know you're a reasonably reasonable person. That is to say, you've consulted other political theorists and that kind of a thing. Though even there, I think Hodge's point is that, of course, the right of judgment exists. It's it's built into our chapter on Christian liberty, and it's built into Chapter One uh, mm. of the uh, Confession of Faith. And so, um, even there, the point would be you might err in your judgment, and you might be penalized for it. And as long as you understand that that's the risk you take. If you wish to practice differently than the magistrate says, then uh, as long as you understand that you might be penalized for it, then that's fine. You can, 
accept your penalty when it comes and you don't whine about it. You don't complain about it. And you say, you know, I, I thought he was you wrong. Submit. So I acted contrarily. And I, I paid my price for it. And, and mm. that's fine. And, and also that, you know, our, if we choose to disregard a, a command we believe to be unlawful, we don't in doing that create public disorder. I think that's an important um, qualifier. Yeah. With the apostles, what's fascinating is uh, whether it's right before God to obey you rather than God, you decide. It's <laughs> crinite, right? So they actually place themselves under the jurisdiction of the magistrate and recognize his appropriate jurisdiction and say to, to them, crinite, you decide. So they understand that it's their decision whether to punish the apostles or not. And the apostles recognize that. And so on the one hand, they do not offer them the obedience required. And on the other hand, they do submit to the fact that the, the council there at that point will have jurisdiction over the matter and will judge whether to penalize them or not. And of course, we wouldn't have the, the prison epistles of Paul if it weren't for the fact that he was in prison from time to time, right? <laughs> so obviously they disobeyed. Right. Enough that he was imprisoned for a good portion and died in prison, as far as we know, in Rome. Yes. Yes. Any anything to add, Dr. Lynch? No, that's good. Well, thanks for uh, sharing your um, history with with your own congregation. Uh, Dr. Lynch, you're you're in the OPC, which which uh, is an acronym that stands for a number of things, but uh, Dr. Gordon, as a as an officer in the Presbyterian Church in America, what are your goals uh, for this communion uh, in over the next 10 years, next 50 years? No, uh, I don't know. I, it, it uh, you know, we, we were a schismatic communion from the get-go. Uh, there's no lawful raison d'etre for the PCA's existence. Uh, proven by the fact that within 10 years, they were inviting other communities to enjoy to join them, mm. lock, stock, and barrel, which means they could have just simply joined the OPC or the ARPAS, which existed at that time. So there was no justification for our denomination to exist. But now that it's here, it does bear the marks, the three marks of a church. And so it is a church, right? It shouldn't be, and it shouldn't be here. Uh, so I guess I would wish for it, what I wish for all churches is that they continue to persevere by the grace of God in administering uh, the ordinances of God, that they devote themselves to the word and to the sacraments and to discipline and to prayer and, um, and uh, pray for God's blessings on it. Mm, amen. Well, we, we, do, um, we do wish uh, the OPC would have, uh, would have joined us back in, was it two or three times uh, there was an attempt uh, to uh, be unified, united to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church? Yeah, it was, it was the same invitation each time. And uh, the OPC had, you know, I think they consider it over several years. Um, and, uh, and, and they rightly rejected it, uh, that it was, uh, it was disrespectful to the existing communions. The, the PCA should have joined them. They were the older communions. There was also no uh, proper joining and receiving bypassed all of the stuff that you used to do in a merger where you dealt, you found your two or three smaller differences and determined how to adjudicate them. So instead, what the PCA did is it, it says, we'll take all of your ministers and other officers as they stand now. And by the criteria by which they were originally in that role. And so, for instance, I don't believe in the two and a half office view. I believe in three or four. But the RPCS believed in three. 
And so I, as a candidate for the ministry at that point, I had already made my exceptions known. So now the PCA stuck with me, belly aching about the three office view and the two and a half office view for years. And they can't do anything about it, you see, because they took those of us in. As far as I know, there weren't too many premillennials in the uh, RPCES, but it was permissible. And so we, we might have brought uh, pre-mills in with us and there'd be nothing we could do about it if they were already if they already had some status um, at that point they were invited in so they really should have worked through all those kinds of things and and decided like true mergers do with due respect for other ecclesiastical bodies to say we have these two or three differences how are we going to handle them and and then resolve that and instead they just, just said well we'll just work it out um, and and you know it hasn't worked perfectly and we we're would still have been trying better, to work it out. Yeah, and we would have been a better communion if the OPC were a part of us. But really, that means when the PCA was founded in 1973, there was no, it seems to me, justifiable uh, reason, ecclesiologically speaking, for them not to just join the OPC or existing RPCES communions. They had well-established presbyteries and communions all across the country. Uh, the, ha the handful of people that came out of the PCA originally, what, 30,000 or 25,000, whatever it was, they would have been welcomed into the other Napart churches with open arms. All right. Well, uh, thank you both for your time. This has been uh, wonderful for me to reunite with uh, the two of you. I've, I've enjoyed it, and I've, I've learned a great deal. Yeah, it's been nice for me to get acquainted with Dr. Lynch. Hey, nice to meet you, Dr. Gordon. Ryan, it's good to see you again. It, it really is. It's a sweet time. Thank you both. Yeah. Take care. Good to see you. Thanks for joining the conversation on the Westminster Standard, which is the podcast of Jude 3. For additional resources or to make a donation, please visit our website, jude3pca.org. I hope you'll come back again next week for more encouraging content as we seek to cultivate biblical fidelity and confessional integrity within the Presbyterian Church in America and Reformed churches everywhere. I'll talk to you then. Thank you. Thank you.